Hello and welcome to the Magnum PI Rewatch Podcast. Uh, my name is Graham. I'm from LoadingReadyRun.com, where we do funny internet stuff. Uh, I'm Kathleen. I'm also from that place. Yes, and uh, this is something that we have actually wanted to do for a while. I, it started as a joke, didn't it? Well, my love of Magnum PI is no joke. Let's, let's right. back that truck up here a little bit. I'm sorry for ever suggesting such a thing. When you search for rewatch podcasts on iTunes, you look at the sort of shows that uh, are done with them, and it's uh, literally every Star Trek. Um, you know, that whole sort of class of 80s, 90s sci-fi cult shows like Babylon 5 and Farscape, and uh, there's ones for Twin Peaks, and uh, our friend Max does one for Lost. Yeah, and there's all these good shows that have rewatch podcasts, but why not a, a pretty good show? Hey, now you say, you know, pretty good, but at its time, Magnum was like A-plus number one. It ran for eight seasons. That was unprecedented in the 1980s. Normally, television shows ended after seven. There wasn't any of this, like, 11-season bullshit. Yeah. I mean, I guess the Cosby show went for, like, a trillion years as well, but that was also kind of unprecedented. Mm-hmm. But anyhow. So for those of you who are un- unfamiliar with what a rewatch podcast is... Uh, is every episode of the podcast, we will be talking about an episode of the show, which is we'll go watch the show and then tell you about what happens so that you don't have to watch it yourself. Or you can watch or it you yourself. you can watch it with us, I guess. With a brand new appreciation. Yeah, it's up to you how you do it. Um, but uh, in this in this pilot episode of our Rewatch podcast, we will be telling you about the pilot episode of Magnum P.I. But why why Magnum? What's What's your connection? <laughs> Okay, so Magnum P.I., because as we mentioned, started in 1980, so it makes the show uh, older than both of us. Yep. Uh, When I was a kid in New Zealand, uh, TV was um, not perhaps as fresh as uh, as it is in North America when you have like the yearly crop of new shows. Uh, New Zealand TV in sort of the mid to late 80s had two channels. Uh, I remember actually right before we left New Zealand in 1989, they were getting a third channel and that was like really exciting news. Whoa. There was a whole, uh, for some reason, every week my mother bought the TV guide, even though there was two channels. That, wow, okay. <laughs> it was a thing that she did. It's like in England, you, what's on the other side? They still call it that, BBC One and BBC Two. They call it the other side. Well, this is, I, one was like, uh, there was New Zealand TV One, which showed boring things like the news. is probably be the channel I'd watch now. And TV Two showed exciting things like reruns of the Charlie Brown and Snoopy show, which, uh, which I found out later were not... 1980s productions, but mid-70s productions, so they're already like 10-plus years old by the time I got to see them. Uh, a bit of a backstory is that when I was a child, uh, I was homeschooled, but my mother did not care much for children, and so I had a lot of what I would call unsupervised television time What I watched probably inappropriate things for my age group, because as long as I just stayed away from her and did not make noise, I would not get in trouble. Yeah, Magnum, I don't think is... It's, it's would you let a five-year-old watch that show? No. The pilot we just watched, probably not. Yeah, I wouldn't. No. <laughs> I mean, I turned out fine, though, so maybe it's maybe it's okay. But anyhow, uh, so this, uh, this show uh, forms a warm, fuzzy spot in my heart as one of the first things I can remember watching. Uh, I have no idea when I came in. I just remember that Magnum was on TV, and I remember my dad had a mustache like Magnum. And I don't know if my dad grew the mustache because of Magnum. I mean, it was the 1980s. So and, everyone had mustaches. Oh, yeah. If you look at the cast of Magnum, only one main character doesn't have a mustache. Yeah. This was like... Mustache power hour. Yeah. It was, it was like the most concentrated era of mustaches in history. Yeah. But uh, anyhow, so Magnum had a mustache. My dad had a mustache. Magnum seemed like a cool guy. Uh, he had a red car. That's about as far as my appreciation went. But I'd always had this kind of nostalgic spot in my heart. Uh, and when I was in university, actually... 
Uh, I was very, very poor. I've been poor most of my life, but I was especially poor in university. And uh, I could not afford cable, but we did have cable internet because priorities, man. Mm -hmm. And uh, I found out that if you plug in your TV into the cable anyhow while you have cable internet, you will get a one or two channel bleed over. I swear to God, this trick works. If you cannot afford cable, but you have cable internet. They might have fixed that now. I mean, yeah, this is a while ago. Yeah. But I mean, it still worked in Prince George when I was in school. And you got Magnum? I got two channels. Uh I got Annie Mm. and CNN. Oh, wow. Uh, So CNN was useful. For, news. you know, it's news. Back I, when it was better news. Uh, it still wasn't great. Like, okay. let's be honest here. I think those people that hearken back to the days of like a, a, a wonderful CNN uh, perhaps did not watch that much CNN. Fair enough. Uh, but it also got Annie. And of course, this is back in the day where there wasn't as many reality TV shows as possible. So we're filling the gaps in the schedule with old episodes of network television, including to my extreme delight, Magnum P.I., I watched so much Magnum P.I. when I was in university because it was one of the only things on. It was on all the time. You were like, I remember watching this when I was really young. Yeah. Now, for my part, I think I've watched the second half of like four episodes. Yeah. Ever. Like just from channel surfing when I used to live with my parents. Be like, oh, this looks like fun. Explosions, car chases, you know, generally kicking ass. Mm-hmm. And I'm... and I, it seemed fun, and I'm aware of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it I, I feel and it that looks, most people are aware of Magnum and have never seen an episode. Yeah, like it looks campy and pulpy and silly, but I've never actually seen it until now. And uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm really excited about this. Okay, but why should you watch Magnum if you've never seen an episode of Magnum? Well, Graham, do you like shows like NCIS or JAG or Quantum Leap? I, well, I like Quantum Leap. Well, then you would be interested to know that Magnum was produced by one Donald P. Belisario, who is the person responsible for all of those other shows. That's a name. He has made a little television production empire of these very kind of similar shows with sort of uh, similar uh, themes and characters. Basically, all his shows usually feature somebody who's in some kind of like American military or Navy kind of command. Uh, I guess the best example of that would also be NCIS, which is like the Navy investigation services, which actually... and that. Agency actually shows up in the pilot of Magnum, and Magnum is an ex uh, Navy Marine. Yeah. He always has like these like wacky casts of friends who like maybe don't get along all the time, but sometimes do get along and have like a grudging friendship. And he's got like these kind of like playboy, you know, rough exterior, but heart of gold, actual nice guy characters. You know, like there's a character like that in NCIS, there's like a character like that in Jag, there's obviously Magnum. Like all of this goes across all of his shows. Hmm. So anyhow. And which, which, which is interesting because uh, Magnum, this is, uh, we're going to be doling out the Magnum trivia over the course of this podcast, but uh, originally the pitch for the show was very much more James Bondy. Mm. Like it was like he was going to be the ex like the the ex naval marine doing a pri- like working as a PI, uh, but he was going to be like way more James Bond, like suave and debonair and totally cool and everything. And Tom Selleck wanted to play him more as like a affable kind of lovable jock type character, mm. and they 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 disagreed on it. And so Tom Selleck said, "All right, well, I've been offered the part of this role, uh, Indiana Jones." in a movie called Raiders of the Lost Ark. And I think I'm going to go do that instead. And the writers and producers of Magnum P.I. were like, okay, okay. You do it your way. Okay, we'll, we'll do it. We'll do it your way. And so we, what we ended up with was, I think, a much better series 
in Magnum P.I. Okay. and Harrison Ford as Indiana Jones, which is probably better. I feel like, I feel like... It would have been the... a very different series of movies. It would have been more like the Alan Quartermain movies if Tom Selleck had been Indiana Jones. Well, no, I think it would have been the same movie. I think Tom Selleck probably has enough range as an actor to play basically the same kind of character as... Probably, but how was he able to demand... Prior to this, he'd done like a guest spot on two episodes of the Rockford files and like a bunch of other like single, like he was not a huge star before. He Magnum. started out as a model. Yes. Very, very pretty man. Tom Selleck. We see a lot of him in the uh, show, but, uh, it, I mean, like, I feel like that worked out better overall, but can you imagine a Magnum PI where Harrison Ford, they just did a switch. Oh, wow. That'd be so weird. I feel, I feel like that would be the more 007 show. Yeah. Also originally Magnum PI was going to be set in Southern California. Why'd they go with Hawaii? Because CBS was that year wrapping up production of Hawaii Five-0, which had gone for 12 years, and they didn't want to close their Hawaii production studio. So they were like, well, we got this new show we're doing. Let's set it in Hawaii. And if it's a hit, good. Yeah. And it was. And that brings us neatly to the pilot episode, the two-part pilot. Uh, we'll cover both parts in one yeah. podcast. We won't draw you out on a, in unnecessary suspense. Because we watched the first episode, and we were like, we should figure out how this ends so the so the pilot episode don't eat the snow in hawaii i mean that's a clever joke once you know what the episode's about yeah spoilers cocaine very edgy yeah so the cold open uh the camera fades up on a beachfront in hawaii and uh very similar to that uh scene as you mentioned of uh, daniel craig and casino royale there's uh tom Selleck wearing Tiny shorts. Except he is much hairier than Daniel Craig. Oh, yes. This was the 80s, and chest hair was de rigueur. Yeah. There are jokes in Bloom Candy, which is a, a, a very famous comic strip from the 80s, about Steve Dallas pr- uh, applying mascara to his chest hair to make it look fluffier, just as a reference point for you. Yeah. And so he, he swims ashore with uh, a bag of, like, clothing mm-hmm. and he starts narrating i had i actually did not know that this show that he narrated the show yeah he does like this little like sort of like breaking the fir- fourth wall narration where he kind of tells the audience what's going on yeah, he's like so here i am breaking into this building uh and you may be wondering here's the stuff in the building now, yeah but i also live here and you're like what and he's like so you may be wondering why am i breaking into the place i live and so it sort of sets up a bunch of different things. I get the idea that it's not necessarily supposed to be fourth wall breaking, that it's more just, this is actually Magnum's running head commentary he has going on because he's very much the star of his own show. He does, about 10 minutes into the show, he does literally turn to the camera. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know if that was an accident or not. <laughs> so um, as he's sneaking into this place, and then we'll tell you more about who's, whose house it is and everything in a moment. As he's sneaking into the place, he has this, he has a flashback to Nam. Because he was in the Vietnam War. This is 1980. This is only five years after the Vietnam War ended. This was actually considered kind of controversial at the time. But the show is also praised for showing uh, positive examples of of Vietnam veterans. Because mm-hmm. okay. most of the main cast, the their characters are were in the same unit in Vietnam, mm-hmm. uh, and they're not. They're you know being treated nicely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that's like a Dol- Donald P. Bellis, not the nom thing, but like the 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 serviceman thing is like a is like a Belisario trope. But also, uh, you have to remember in the historical context of the Vietnam War, it wasn't a it was a draft war. People didn't want to go. People didn't really see what they were doing there. So there was this whole like. Uh, it's not necessarily shame, but it was not the kind of respect that you get for veterans coming back 
from like World War One, World also, War Two, Korea, didn't... the other wars today, like Iraq, Afghanistan. Like people like respect that these are shitty situations to be in and that, you know, these people made a choice to go for the common good, but that's not how Vietnam kind of shook out. Also, they didn't win. The fall of Saigon was them hauling ass out of there. I mean, there's that. It's a little uncomfortable. Anyhow. So he has a flashback to Nam. And I'm like, boy, there's a lot more Nam flashbacks than I remember. Yeah, and it's just sort of him remembering just sort of shooting and being shot at, and it's not really clear exactly what's going on. And so then he goes back to explaining... What the situation is with this house. This house is owned by an author who is a friend of his. Who Robin? Robin Masters. Robin Masters. Uh, and he's allowing Magnum, the private investigator, to stay there in exchange for testing the security of his sort of Hawaiian compound. And the security of the Hawaiian compound, apart from the gate, the, the lock he is picking as he's describing this, is uh, the major domo, as he describes him, uh, Higgins, who's this British... Uh, pencil mustached, um, uh, World War Two captain or something. Yeah, basically. he's all clad. Or maybe in, Korean War captain. He's all no. Uh, in the in the thing, it is supposed to be World War Two. He he looks younger than his character probably should. Uh, you know, he's all clad in khaki shorts and and uh, and you know, he's sort of is running the the compound in you know, tip top shape and all that. He looks like he could have fallen out of the World War Two series of Blackadder. Yeah, he really does. Um, so it's uh. Higgins and his two dogs, Zeus and Apollo. Who are really well-trained dogs. Incredibly well-trained. What kind of dog are they? Those are Doberman Pinschers. Right. And That's uh, one of my skills. I can identify <laughs> dogs. <laughs> and basically the quest is he's trying to steal uh, Robin Master's Ferrari. Yes. That's 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 what he's doing in this, in this uh, sort of uh, pre-title sequence. Mm-hmm. And so he's... And there's also two... I believe they're Russian or German. They're probably not Russian. They're probably German. West German. I think they're German. Uh, stewardesses, stewardi. They're flight attendants, but in the show, they, in the show, they call them stews. Yeah, that was weird. Yeah. I don't think. I think that might be the first and only time anyone's ever referred to them as stews. A couple of East German stews. Who no, bu- they'd be West German. Graham, it's the nineteen eighties. Sorry, West German. <laughs> anyway, the let me just tell you, their hair was so feathered. <laughs> they were like twins too. Yeah, so, they, they, so they were like hanging out in Robin Masters house yeah and just sort of flouncing around in bikinis Mm -hmm. i have to i have to like for historical context this is the 1980s so i keep saying they're not russian they're not east german but also airline stewardesses today do not perhaps have a uh uh, a glamorous job output we basically kind of refer to them as like bus waitresses of the sky as i think is a good way that people kind of and i realize that stewardesses actually you know are really highly trained to know like well, high levels of first aid it's, it's also not just women now which yeah it was at the time yeah but uh, so well i'm getting fl- to that flight attendants flight attendants i'm getting to that but back in the 19 back in the deep dark 35 years ago of 1980 flight attendances were flight attendants were basically still like Hot chicks on planes because plane air travel was still very expensive. It was like more of a luxury thing. And there was this more like luxury uh, feel to it where like beautiful women in like nice uniforms would be attending to you essentially. So stewardesses back in those days were usually picked more for their looks than their skills. Mm. So I think the system today is better, even though the position probably has less respect. So they're in the house as well. Uh, which is only marginally relevant later. But anyway, so the the sequence is he's sneaking around. He like he distracts the dogs, jumps over the fence, leads them through, manages to lock the dogs outside the guard fence, 
because he like distracts them with meat or something. Higgins is running downstairs. He's uh, Magnum is sneaking around the the garden. Plentiful shots of Tom Selleck's butt clad in wet trunks mm-hmm. uh, as he's sort of like crouch running through the thing. Had I been a gay man or a woman who was at all interested in people instead of merely twinkle in my parents' eyes in 1980, I would have very much enjoyed watching the sequence. Yeah. <laughs> and then he, so he finally gets to the Ferrari. Uh, but of course, Higgins has installed an alarm system uh, in the car that he, uh, Magnum has a minute to uh, decode or the uh, or the alarm will go off and that'll be the lose condition for stealing the Ferrari, I guess. Well, he also can't start the car until he does mm. it. And um, uh, he, he determines that it's going to be Robin Master's phone number. And he said in the narration... Uh, how did I know that that would work? And he says, uh, I didn't. But if it wasn't the right combination, then I would have lost. And fate just wouldn't do that to me. That's kind of a, a through line for Magnum. And he's just kind of like lucks into stuff like that. He's just like, mm, uh, this is this is how it's going to go down, I guess. I think if you've never seen Magnum, the character, and you are a nerd like me and Graham, I think the character that you would actually most be able to closely equate Magnum to is No Word of Light, Spike Spiegel. Mm, like, from Cowboy Bebop. From Cowboy Bebop. Like, uh, both, I would describe both of them as, like, very happy-go-lucky, externally affable people with, like, sort of a dark past secret that haunts them. Mm-hmm. And uh, they have success with ladies, and they like to flirt with them. They almost never kind of like get together with them. Like Magnum usually like kisses girls and stuff like that, but he's usually not quite a Lothario. So yeah, I've got, I've got, We've got I've we'll got come more back that. to that. We'll come back to that later. Uh, in the but uh, but yeah, uh, so just switch out, switch out like knowing awesome Jeet Kune Do for just being sort of a general private investigator, and switch bounty hunting for being a private pri- investigator. Yeah. Private, private investigation, and they're basically the same character. So if you like Cowboy Bebop, maybe you'll like Magnum. So while Higgins looks horrified to the degree that if he was wearing a monocle, it would have fired out of his eyes, yeah. and Magnum smirks directly into the camera as he says, fate wouldn't do that to me. He then peels out, and bam, we're in the opening titles of a montage of Magnum driving around Hawaii. Boy, did they ever shoot this on location. Um, with not good theme music. This is not the quintessential Magnum PI theme music. It may have only been used for the pilot. We haven't actually got to the second episode yet, so I don't know when they made the change. I think they made the change for the actual show because yeah. that is terrible. Uh, and the, the the whole pilot is um, presented, like all the footage is through this silhouette of a stylized uh, cross symbol that it was made very obvious in the pre-title it, that Magnum has on a giant ring. It looks like a Hall of Fame ring, but as we find out, it's actually from his, his squad in Nam. His, his squad in Nam. But yeah. So then the opening titles are terrible, and then we randomly cut to people checking into uh, U.S. Customs at the military base, and uh, this guy is coming through with some sort of uh, travel documents, and the guy at the airport is like, "What? Uh, what? What documents are they? I can't read Japanese." And the guy flashes his NIA card, the Naval Intelligence Agency, mm-hmm. and says, "You don't need to worry about what these documents are." And the guy's like, "Okay." So Magnum is getting his Ferrari to go pick this guy up because this is his friend. This is uh, his friend's name is Cook. Mm-hmm. He was in the squad with him and he's coming back from uh, visiting Japan for 24 hours for something. And uh, he wants Magnum to pick him up at the at the at the naval base. So that's that's why Magnum's got the Ferrari. So the guy goes out front of the naval base and meets. This is a very James Bond thing, too. This is very similar to uh, a couple different Bond films when he arrives at the airport and gets picked up by the wrong people. A guy dressed as a. Uh, 
as as a naval officer or well as a as a military police officer actually yeah. comes up and is like hey we the captain wants to talk to you so we'll drive you over there and uh and there was this really cool shot something i noticed magnum's actually got a lot of really interesting cinematography i mean they might be better because it's the pilot so we'll have to reserve judgment but this is a beautiful shot for a television show because it's a one shot with complicated actor choreography and Two driver, two drivers having to choreograph. Yeah, so the camera is on the hood of the car with the two uh, fake military police officers in it. Uh, and then Cook is sitting in the middle of the back seat. And then out the, out the back windshield, you can see Magnum's bright red Ferrari, uh, 308 GTS, mm-hmm. uh, pull into the parking lot. And Cook says, oh, that's the guy who's going to pick me up. Could you pull over? And the guy just keeps driving. He said, hey, could you pull over? And the guy's like, sorry, we're not doing that. And then the guy in the passenger seat grabs Cook, like starts bending his arm around as the car that they're in is turning to keep Magnum's car visible through the rear window as it's parking mm-hmm. and then and then uh, drives away. It's just really, really nicely set up. So they that took a multiple takes. <laughs> yeah. So they're obviously not who they who they uh, who they claim to be. Mm-hmm. And there's a sort of some cuts back and forth with Magnum walking in, finding out his friend's not there, walking back out, with Cook being beaten up and punched very hard in the stomach mm-hmm. by these gentlemen. And then this weird shot of of Cook crawling towards a chain-link fence near the road and seeing Magnum drive by, mm-hmm. like maybe 20 feet away, and going, Magnum, uh, and then dying. Yeah. And you're like, how did he die from just being punched a couple times? He looked pretty okay. Maybe he had a weak spleen. Maybe he had a weak spleen. I think, can you, wait, can you live without your spleen? Uh, I, I mean, know. I always hear about people rupturing their spleens, and I mean, spleen seems like a you know an inherently funny organ. I'm not sure. We'll, we'll come back to that in a future episode. If somebody else gets punched very hard, we'll we'll carry up that spleen thread. So, cut to naval autopsy, and Cook died because one of the or some of the ten sachets of cocaine he was smuggling in his stomach were burst. And you're like, wait, what? Yes. And uh, Private Healy is there with Captain Cooley from the military base. Private Healy is suggesting that uh, because Cook's dad is an admiral, that maybe we should omit a couple, What's happening, a couple yeah. details. You know, say he died of a cocaine overdose, but omit the fact that it looks like he was clearly smuggling cocaine back from Japan. Yeah, we'll omit some of the uh, more, most egregious cocaine-related facts and from the release. Captain Cooley says no. We Fuck are go- that guy. We're going to strip him of all of his military honors, and he is getting a dishonorable burial. And you're like, whoa. whoa. Boy, Cap- Captain Cooley really hates this guy. That's weird. Cut back to Magnum arriving home, where we find that the only thing in his fridge is beer. That is a reoccurring gag throughout the show. He has a mini fridge that's only stocked with beer. Yeah, and... um Inga and Helga, I believe. Well, maybe they're Swedish. They're probably supposed to be Swedish. Oh, of course they are. Swedish twins, Graham. Of course they are. Of course they are. Anyway, they're like, uh, they 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 welcome him back, and he's like, oh, you guys down, because it's moonlight. They're like, you guys hanging out at the tidal pool. And they're like, yeah, it'll be great to get back out of the suits and back in the pool. You can come join us if you want. And he's like, uh, I don't have my trunks. And they're like, that's okay. And he's like, ooh. Yeah. But first he has to make a phone call. So there's this ridiculous slapstick bit where he's, on the phone to uh, trying to get a hold of his friend Cook. And this, this is before the age of portable phones, so he has like a rotary dial telephone with a... On the longest extension cord. People had them on really long extension oh, know, cords back in the day. We did too. Um, and uh, so he's 
running back and forth between the beer and the phone and getting his binoculars so he can look at the stewardesses <laughs> swinging around topless. Yeah, I would like to point out that the stewardesses actually came into that scene wearing matching crochet, like the identical crocheted bikini, but it's just in different colors. Mm-hmm. And so they're like, cute. They're like, hey, you should. So this is what I was talking about when he's not James Bond, because they're like, hey, you should come down to the pool or whatever. And he's he's going to go down. And then when he calls, he gets Private Healy, who tells him the cook is dead. Mm-hmm. So he does not close that deal, which, no. which Bond would have. Bond, Bond would have Bond closed the deal <laughs> with, with the twins, <laughs> then gotten the call. He would have worked through the pain. <laughs> and then you get this shot with this really harsh lighting. It's completely black. You don't see the room Magnum is standing in. You just see him, the head, like you see his head and the receiver and the hand holding the receiver of the phone is the hand with his with his nom ring and there's like this bright light glinting off the ring. And it's like this really like, Ooh, harsh, harsh lighting. Mm. And then it goes to another nom flashback mm-hmm. where you see more of him and cook, uh, literally in the trenches in the jungle of, of, uh, of Vietnam. And then it fades to black. And we come back up on one of the many, uh, helicopter shots of Magnum driving the Ferrari around Hawaii. Oh, just the budget on this. I mean, they clearly used the hell out of the location, which is great, because the whole thing was actually shot in Hawaii. Even the stuff on the soundstage was on the Hawaii Five O soundstage. So the, uh, he's going to the airport to pick up Cook's kid sister mm-hmm. and, and his dad, who's the admiral, right? So this is his buddy Cook. They, went, they were in Nam together. They were in, the, they, were in, they were in the Navy together. Magnum left the Navy for his own reasons. And now he's going to pick up Cook's sister and dad so they can come and do the... The, the body pickup business. Yeah. Uh, However, the, the dad is not there. The dad is not there because he can't... He refuses to believe it, basically. Yeah. Not refuses to believe it. He, he's sort of... Sh- he's shocked. And he's just like... No, especially because in, the, in Captain Cooley's report... You know, they're like, this kid died because he was smuggling a bunch of cocaine. It burst in his stomach, and what a piece of shit. Mm-hmm. And uh, Magnum is incensed that the, that he's just gonna let it sit there. He's like, why isn't your dad? Your dad's an admiral. Why isn't he doing this? Why isn't he doing this? Why isn't he demanding this information? We all know that uh, Cook wouldn't have done something like this. And uh, and his kid sister who uh is basically like oh my dad just you know can't believe it also he's hoping that you won't believe it either so now magnum has this well no the line is he is going uh, because magnum asks uh and what he's just gonna accept them at their word and she says he's going to accept it he's hoping that you won't yeah so now magnum (laughs) is basically obligated to investigate this what he thinks is a murder, but what everybody else thinks is mis- death by misadventure. That conversation scene, by the way, is just randomly on an incredibly rocky beach. Yeah. Incredibly windy, rocky beach because, like I said, they have the locations so... And I'm like watching... Why, why not a coffee shop or a cafe or I mean, in I the feel, car? I feel like people would do that now because getting the sound on that must have been a pain in the ass. Yeah. Because there's a lot of big wide shots of them on this beach. So is this 80 yard later? Like, I don't know what lapel mic technology was like back in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Probably not as good as and small as inconspicuous as it is now. Yeah. So I don't know how they got that. Maybe they 80 yard some of that later. So then uh, hard cut to, um, do you ever see Once Upon a Time in Mexico? No. The Robert Rodriguez movie? No. Okay, well, for those of you who have, the scene where Johnny Depp goes and kills the cook, uh, it's a shot like that. There's this hard cut to this over-the-shoulder shot of magnum 
like in a like in a video game, like a third person video game, like Resident Evil Four, like over his shoulder, as he like just walks into and through the offices of the Naval Intelligence Agency, and then cuts to to the inside of the captain uh, of Captain Cooley's office as he like just slams the door open. Oh man, I've always wanted to enter an office that way. Hi, I'm here to pick up my IKEA furniture. Wham. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, he confronts Captain Cooley because he's like, how, you know... You know this wouldn't happen. This is ridiculous. Yeah, what assignment did you send him to to Japan on? And, and, and Cooley's like, I never sent him to Japan on an assignment. I would never do that. And and Magnum says, well, Cook told me that he was in Japan on, on an assignment for the Naval Intelligence Agency. And Captain Cooley says he absolutely was not. And uh, they get into, they get into a, a heated argument. And uh, the captain reveals... That uh, I could describe it as he's not a fan of Magnum nor Cook because Cook's dad is an admiral and he feels that Magnum and Cook, being close friends who met in the Naval Academy, kind of got fast tracked through there due to family connections and he had to work for 30 years to get his commission. Mm-hmm. And while he he says he he while he didn't strip Cook of his honors and rank and all that out of revenge or anything that it is the uh he considers that because that is the appropriate course of action by the letter of the law he considers that um uh uh just deserts basically this guy's a jerk yeah um so magnum's like all right i gotta find out some more information about this. Well, uh, uh, first Cooley kicks him out of the base and he says, if you ever come back here, you know, I'll charge you from everything from treason to indecent exposure. Uh, and, uh, Magnum says, look, I'm going to look into this and it's going to come back to you. And, uh, you know, you're going to look really bad. I think what he exactly says is early in the conversation, Cooley is talking about how long it took him to earn his stripes. And then Magnum says, I'll strip you of the stripes that you spent 30 years sucking eggs for. Yeah. Uh, which I thought was a great line. (laughs) There's really some, expressive. There's some entertaining lines. Uh, so then Magnum's like, all right, all right, all right. I got to find some some other way into this. So there's uh, Private Healy, who we saw earlier. He's the guy who... He's technically an ensign. Ensign Healy. Pardon me. Pardon me, Ensign Healy. I'm sorry to our naval viewers, listeners, <laughs> who, whom, whom I was misranking Ensign Healy. Um, he uh, was the guy who was like, maybe we don't have to tell the Admiral that his son was smuggling coke. And... Uh, so he's leaving the base in a real nice car, in like a Corvette, mm-hmm. like real nice. And um, which actually we commented on when we were watching it. It turns out that, 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 that doesn't go anywhere. We were like, that seems like an awful nice car for an ensign on a, on a, on a naval base. Turns out it's, no, it, it's just a nice car. He doesn't have any sort of ulterior whatever. Anyway, He just likes cars. So uh, uh, Magnum's like, here, let me take you for a beer. I got to ask you some stuff. Um, and he's like, look. I want you to steal me Cook's case files. And Healy's like, are you insane? I could get in trouble just for talking to you because my captain hates you so much. And he's like, all right, look, can you at least... Because Healy and Cook served together. Healy joined the joined the unit just as Magnum was leaving mm-hmm. the Navy. So they kind of know each other, but... Not really. Not really. And Healy tells him that Captain Cooley basically... That there's no way that he... Like, he, he corroborates that Cooley would never have sent Cook to Japan because... Cooley hated Cook and had him do all the meat, the most menial naval investigation stuff possible. Like someone stole something from this guy's footlocker, so 
Cook, you're in charge of tracking that one down, right? Like the most petty, busy work ever just because... Because Cooley is a jerk. Because Cooley's a jerk. Uh, and well, actually, I, I wrote it down in my notes here. Something that you noticed in this scene, because there's a, there's a tracking shot of Healy and Magnum walking together down the docks. And Healy's, of course, in his full uniform and Magnum's in his trademark jeans and Hawaiian shirt, but wearing the identical belt. He's, the, he's wearing his military belt. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was a neat like, detail. Oh, I got a nice belt. Um, so Healy basically agrees that if he hears something, he'll try to tell Magnum. Which is useless, but, you know, it is better than nothing. Yeah. And Magnum resolves that he will just steal the case files then, and you're like, whoa. Yeah. Pull, pull back. The camera pulls back, and there's a man in a phone booth watching Magnum. And, oh, my goodness, it's the same man who beat up Cook. It's the same two men, yeah, because there's another guy standing outside. The second guy <laughs> eating, like, soft serve ice cream. And they have, like, this little slapstick bit. Where, like, the second guy, the second, like, Thug 2 has ice cream on his face, so Thug 1 kind of, like, wipes it off and does, like, a, oh, got your shirt kind of thing. Like, with his thumb? It, yeah. It, I thought it was a cute little moment. It was a very... They have fun I, They have fun with their work as hitmen. I mean, like, they seem like good friends. It makes the upcoming scene a little bit more tragic. Yeah. So then we're midway through the episode, and, uh, or through part one, and Kathleen points out that it's now time for the Magnum P.I. midway summing up. Yes. So there's this shot of... I like how I knew this would happen. Yeah, so they're following... The two hitmen are following Magnum as he's driving along the freeway. So we're just getting these wide helicopter shots of Magnum on the freeway while he's narrating everything that you've just heard. Mm-hmm. Like, the, like the episode thus far. He's sort of putting it all together in his head. So then these guys start actively chasing him. Mm-hmm. He, he he goes into a tunnel. He turns his lights on. They forget to turn their lights on because their car is crappy. And then he realizes they sort of pump the brakes. He realizes they're chasing him. And then it becomes an actual chase scene. By the way, the car, because he mentions that their car is crappy so he can outrun them, but that they're actually shooting at him. There is a, sh- a couple shots in here where their crappy car takes a hard corner and there's gas just pouring out of their gas tank which actually proves to be relevant later yeah but i don't think this was um on purpose it was not featured enough to make me think that it's on purpose i think that they I was, there was actually just gasoline sloshing out of the tank oh dear uh so the, the lackluster chase scene uh, i mean he he magnum actually says wow they don't actually don't have enough car to catch me yeah. so he's not really too concerned about it but then he says this blew my mind he's he's so he's he goes from not being worried to suddenly being worried because what if they hurt the ferrari where is he gonna get sixty thousand dollars to replace it man you can't like that is the price of a nice what volvo <laughs> nowadays sixty thousand dollar ferrari yeah <laughs> Jeez. All right, so anyhow. Once again, this is the 308 GTS. Um, <laughs> so then they do the, the classic thing where there's like cars coming the opposite direction on the highway and there's a car trying to pass an RV so both lanes are full in the oncoming direction and Magnum swerves around both and is able to do it and the other car can't quite swerve and they go off a cliff and it tumbles down and the car does not explode. No, but it does catch fire. But it does catch fire. And then it the gas then ignites and then there is a small gasoline explosion. And then Magnum's like, okay, so they're dead. Uh, this'll look weird. I'm just going to go home. I'm just going to leave. I can't help them, so later. <laughs> There's a disturbing lack of consequences to many of these uh, Magnum cases. But before the scene cuts, we see that one of them, Thug One, the big the big Hawaiian guy, is not dead. Uh-oh. Womp, womp, womp. Womp, womp, womp. Cut back to the Robin Masters estate, and uh, Higgins and uh, Magnum draw a thick white line down the estate 
because Higgins is like, all right, if you're so determined to be leeching off my employer, Higgins says, I get the main house, the stables, and the tennis courts. Those are off limit to you. You get the guest house and the car, and we will consider the pool a demilitarized zone. Hmm. But, but relevantly, before this happens, Higgins lets on that Magnum has told Robin Masters that Higgins' security is top-notch and it is completely impenetrable, even though Magnum was able to steal the Ferrari at the beginning of the scene. So it's set up that Higgins owes Magnum a favor because had Magnum reported honestly, as Higgins probably would have done, Higgins may not have his cushy job anymore. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because Magnum said, I figure your security is impenetrable to anyone but me because he's a suave jerk. Yes. Um, Also, he offers, I just liked this, he offers Higgins a, a whiskey. And uh, so they're both having whiskey and he puts ice in his glass and he's about to put it in Higgins' glass. And Higgins says, don't ruin my whiskey with ice. I'm not a bloody American. Uh, in real life, Jonathan Hillerman is, of course, from Texas. Yeah, John Hillerman, who plays Higgins, is actually from Texas. This might be the only case of an American affecting a British accent in the history of television <laughs> or movies. And th- Well, that's, I mean. I mean, I'm joking. I know. Uh, and he cheers to uh, Prince of Wales Regiment, West Yorkshire, because he's from the war. Um, so then, uh, Magnum makes a phone call to another one of the sub characters, the supporting cast. It's to, Rick. It's Rick. Rick on the phone at, uh, Rick's Cantina, uh, the terrible disco we'll talk more about in a later, or that we'll talk about a little later. Rick says, uh, all right, you can talk. It's your nickel. And I'm like, it took me, a, it took me a second to process it. Cause I'm like, what does pay phones I guess payphones cost five. Wow. And I'm like, geez. And then what is also sprinkled throughout this conversation is that in the pilot, at least not so much in the actual show, Rick is obsessed with Casablanca and he keeps dropping all of these Casablanca references. Really ham fistedly. And I'm like, I feel like this is actually worse in the 1980s because Casablanca is like old, but not like so old that it's like come back around to being retro is just something old people like he he wishes he was humphrey bogart yeah yeah like he's clearly got this thing going on and then and then uh uh, yeah like i feel like it's more ironic now but but irony in that sense had not been invented in the 1980s (laughs) so it was just stupid what i like is that he makes that at the end of the phone call he makes that like of all the gin joints reference and we're like oh and then cuts back to magnum who's like oh yeah (laughs) even magnum's like it's supposed to be ham-fisted which i like uh, take cut that from later episodes because I thought the audience could not identify it with it. Yeah. 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 Well, actually, um, there's a change to Rick's employment, but we'll yeah, get well, to that we'll in later We'll get to that episodes. later. Yeah. Um, so, uh, oh yeah, on, on his way out, before Magnum calls Rick, Higgins makes reference to Magnum's sister. And Just sort like, of makes reference and, and Magnum's like, I... Well, you might have saw me do this. I was like, Magnum, and I know, I'm like, Magnum doesn't have a sister. Yeah, and Magnum just sort of doesn't say anything, but sort of looks confused. So he gets off the phone with Rick, goes into his bedroom, and there's a bag there, and there's someone in the shower. And it turns out that it is actually Cook's sister who did not go back with Cook's body because she said, no, if you're solving this case, I'm here, I'm helping you. Mm-hmm. And uh, and to her to her credit, she is actually quite smart and helpful mm-hmm. along the entirety of this case. Yes, and then... She's not just merely a damsel in distress to slow Magnum down. This is the second James Bond setup that... Magnum does not close the deal on mm-hmm. of the episode where uh, she's in a towel because she's just gotten out of the shower. And he's like, well, the only question now is who has to sleep on the couch? And then there's this moment. And I'm like, there's ew. This moment, and it looks like something's going to happen. And then he's like, wait, what's this envelope? And she's like, oh, it's full of Cook's effects. And he's like, oh, no. 
the nom again. Yeah, and then then we then we go to a third nom flashback where we get more uh, set up where we meet a pilot, uh, and we see that Rick is in fact uh, on the the helicopter where they're trying to get an evac from. Yeah, so there's so there's but a, his name is actually Orville. Yeah, so there's there's a there's a pilot who uh, we don't yet know the name of in a helicopter with Rick who now runs the cantina, and on the ground is Magnum and Cook and their commanding officer and a couple other guys who are trying to get to the helicopter. And that's where it ends. That's where part one ends. I, be, I believe these were, these were originally aired... Back to back? Back to back. Part two opens. There's no opening titles because it's just part two because it was basically like a two-hour TV pilot. A two-hour television experience, Graham. Yeah. So we like the, the first part on the DVD ends so abruptly that we were like, uh-huh. I, we have to... For the first episode of this, we obviously have to do the whole pilot or else... This is terrible. This is terrible. So... Um, Oh yeah, something I forgot. When Magnum is going, the beginning of the first episode, when Magnum's going to the naval base to pick Cook up, he knows the guy at the guard tower, and uh, the guard like makes some side some side reference to the Ferrari clearly not being Magnum's car, and Magnum's like, "What do you mean it's not my car?" And the guard just laughs. He just laughs at the mere thought that this could be Magnum's car. I mean, it costs sixty whole thousand dollars, Graham. <laughs> So then they go to uh, Rick's uh, Rick's like nightclub, oh. and the 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 valet who also, knows Magnum also does not believe it's Magnum's car, and also demonstrates this disbelief just by laughing. No dialogue, and just like like wow, nice car. Who'd you steal it from? What do you mean? It could be mine. And the guy just laughs, just laughs at the mere thought that Magnum could have any money. Yeah. So Rick's Cantina. This oh, is God. not this is not the bar he ends up with in the TV show. If you're a fan of the TV show, you know he actually runs bar at the King Kamehameha Club. Mm-hmm. It's a beachfront bar. We'll get to that later. But the, in the pilot, he runs this sleazy, gross Moroccan themed disco with like. One-way mirrors out of the office and, like... like Reflective mosaic tiles on the uh, columns. It yeah. is the chintziest. It is, it is, it is like, uh, like... And Magnum refers to it as the Snow Palace. Yeah, because that's where you go to score Coke. Yeah, and I'm like, whoa! <laughs> this is considerably more down-market than the actual TV show and a lot grosser and seedier, like... And how does Magnum convince Rick to help him? Uh, he tells Rick that if he doesn't help him figure out where all this cocaine came from, uh, that who, basically Magnum is like, I want to talk to somebody who has enough cocaine that they wouldn't think of blowing 10 ounces of cocaine just to kill someone, which is quite a bit of money. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and uh, the the leverage he uses is he threatens to reveal Rick's real name, Orville. Yeah. <laughs> he says, he talks to the DJ at the club and says, hey DJ, or like, hey Sam, yeah? Is your real name Sam? Hell no. It's Albert. Albert. <laughs> like, cool. Well, Rick's real name is and Rick's like, I did because <laughs> of course he called the DJ Sam because he thinks Casablanca is so sweet. I think, I think it's great that if you could choose any name, it's the 1980s. So he chose Rick, Rick, which is like, who, 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 who chooses that name today? Nobody goes into a place and they're like, Oh, I can finally reinvent myself and lose this baggage. I want to be a Rick. So we go into Rick's, uh, <laughs> Rick's office, which is uh, decorated in dusty rose color. It was the 80s. And uh, Rick, Big fan of Queen Vic. Yeah. <laughs> Rick. Rick tells Magnum um, that uh, uh, Snow White is there, and they, he's arranging a meeting. Snow White 
is a cocaine queen, I guess. Mm -hmm. She's the lady who runs the cocaine business in the island. Yeah. Or on the island. And uh, they they look at her through the one-way glass in Rick's office, and uh, they're like, oh, she looks so young, because she's she's 19 uh, from... And she's Vietnamese. Yep. And uh, I, this is, the act, the actress doesn't look 19. <laughs> no. But apparently she's supposed to be 19. Uh, and she was married at age 11. Uh, to some sort of cocaine drug dealing warlord who, through the <laughs> Vietnam War, had control of all the drugs coming in and out of the Golden Triangle. Yeah. And then he mysteriously died somehow. And no one really knows why, but they're pretty sure she did it. I would do it, too, if I was her. And anyhow, she has a French accent. Which is interesting. Well, no, she has a French accent because uh, the French were the colonial rulers of Vietnam. Yeah, no, that's why it's interesting. Okay. I, I'm not like, here's a French accent. How'd they mess that up? I thought oh, it was interesting. Okay. Yeah. And uh, so that's why, if you, that's why Vietnam has banh mi, which is like delicious sandwiches on like really good French bread because they... Stole the, uh, not stole, but they took the thing that the French people were good for, which was bread recipes, and then got rid of them because they were not so good at treating the Vietnamese people very nicely. So they kicked them out. We got the bread. Thanks. Take off. Yeah. P- yeah pretty much piss off. We've got the one thing you're good at. Um, <laughs> and uh, But it means like upper class Vietnamese people uh, spoke French or and were educated in French and so therefore ended up with French accents. So mm-hmm. that's an interesting little touch, which you really don't see nowadays. So Snow White has a friend who is a gold smuggler. Uh, and he's, what sort of nationality was he? He also seemed French to me. Really? He looks sort of like from Turkey or something. Swarthy. Swarthy, yeah. He was a lot of, indeterminately swarthy. The, the, <laughs> his shirt was unbuttoned down to like some, like halfway between nipples and navel, and it was just like hair. Like yeah, he, but that's like what Magnum and, would look I know, like. I know, that's what I'm saying. He and Magnum were having a chest hair off in that scene. As far as I'm concerned. Anyway, so what they what they determine is that she obviously is not the one who uh, killed this guy, but she wants to find out who did because if they have that much cocaine, then that's a problem for her. Mm-hmm. And they think that it's probably this guy, uh, Naboul, who also has a bunch of... Laboul. Laboul? I thought it was with an N. No, I, I thought... I swear it was Naboul. I thought it was Naboul. Because I, I kept chuckling about Star Wars every time no, we said Naboul. I'm pretty sure it was Laboul. Mm, okay. So, uh, blank Bool. Anyway, bull, bullio. Um, el bullio. El bullio. El uh, bullion. Okay. Bullion. Uh, s- apparently has a bunch of gold that he's selling for half market price. And uh, this guy, this, the gold smuggler is super annoyed about that because this is cutting into his business. Yeah. And then they're like, well, who is it? And he's like, if I knew, I would be buying this gold, right? So they have to figure out who Nabool is because they figure that he's the crux of all of their problems. So then, then you cut to... A helicopter. A helicopter you'll see much more throughout the series. It's uh, black and orange and yellow. It's kind of the iconic Magnum helicopter. Yeah, being driven by a new character that just hard gets introduced. Well, you've seen him in the flashbacks. Yes, you saw him in the flashback at the end of the first part because he was Magnum's helicopter pilot in Vietnam. And now here he is running a helicopter tour business, I think, Mm -hmm. in, in Hawaii. And uh, TC stands for something. I can't remember what. But anyway, they call him TC. He's wearing a Da Nang uh, baseball cap. Uh, and then it goes back to another flashback where they're in, they're in Vietnam. They're, they pop smoke. They're running for the helicopter that Rick and TC are in the two other guys, the two other unnamed dudes in their unit don't make it. Their captain or their, whoever the commanding officer is at the time. I don't know his actual rank. I don't think it's brought up. 
Uh, like, he gets shot, but he gets isn't shot, dead. Isn't dead. Lays down covering fire for them. They and uh, Magnum and Cook are the only ones that make it to the helicopter. So you got Magnum and Cook and TC and Rick, and they're all in the helicopter and they escape. And then there's this really cool scene transition to the Vietnam helicopter uh, flying out of shot, and then the uh, cutting back to present day and the, the tour helicopter flying back into shot. I was really pleased with that. So they're they're looking for boats. They're lo- there's like there's only so many yachts around here, which is crazy that that he's like, there's 19 yachts here. There's six yachts down at this beach. There's three yachts over in this bay. We got to go look at all the yachts. And I'm like, how are there so few yachts? I feel like uh, money was more concentrated in the middle class back in the 1980s, and there's like less yacht owners and more people who don't, more people who like yachts but don't get to have them. Right. So uh, TC's like, well, what about that uh, that boat over there by this island? The island, by the way, I do not pretend to know how to pronounce. And uh, Magnum's like, no, 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 no. That's a naval whatever craft they're just doing on patrols. I don't think we're going to find this. I don't think we're going to find El Bulio on a uh, uh, naval craft. So I just looked it up. It is La Boule. L-A space B-U-L-L-E. La Boule. La Boule. All right. And so- my, my source, magnumania.com. <laughs> So uh, then they go, then they go looking. There's this montage of them, Magnum with binoculars, TC. They're flying around in this helicopter with weird music. Oh, bad music! Again, the pilot did not have good music. No, and this is like, inco- like it's weird and it's kind of like smooth jazz and like '80s educational theme music. Like yeah. is how I would describe it. And like then, the, then when Magnum has this, has the epiphany that he's like, wait a minute, the Navy doesn't patrol on Sunday. That's not a naval ship. We need to go back to that island because that must be it. The music under uh, underscoring this revelation is real. Kind of like. Do, do, do you think we can use some of the music in the? I'm just gonna put some of the music in. Let's let's listen. Right? That's weird. That's not that's not exactly high stakes danger to me. Yeah. Um so they get back to the boat. The boat doesn't have markings. Oh it's a private craft, but the but it looks the silhouette, the lines are that of a naval craft, but it is not. Oh, so sneaky. Yes. So then they uh they buzz the uh the the thing once and then they the people on the boat realize that they're being watched and then they go back again so Magnum can take a bunch of pictures. Mm-hmm. And uh with the long one of the longest <laughs> telephoto lenses yeah. I have seen in a long time. Think about how much that cost him. A lot. Oh yeah, that's Well, he's a private investigator. That's a business expense right there. Yeah, but like those things are not cheap. No, they're not. Um you could probably buy a Ferrari with that money. <laughs> Well, I don't know about that, but <laughs> well, two of them. Yeah. Um, so then uh, they're he, he's taking pictures. They're being shot at, and there's a guy, uh, Laboule. We assume to be Laboule on mm-hmm. the on the deck of the boat, but you can't tell who he is because he's got binoculars in front of his face. Mm-hmm. Oh, but he is a white guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas, and whereas all, like everyone else is Vietnamese. Magnum was like, I kind of recognize, like his stature. Stance? Yeah, I. I immediately guessed who it was, but that's beside the point. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Well, I mean, and also there's the fantastic uh, line of Magnum telling TC, there's no way the guy involved in this is in the Navy. Yeah. 
So it's like, mm-hmm. And I'm like, all right, Cooley's definitely in on it now. If I didn't already completely suspect him because of his sudden, like, uh, willingness to, like, write this guy off and throw the book at him, even though he's, like, the son of an admiral, and it seems like a really bad idea for your career to piss off an admiral. Yeah. Right? Uh, and now that he, they've said it's not going to be in the Navy, it's definitely connected to the Navy. Yeah. So, obviously, Captain Cooley is being set up right there. Um, so, so it goes back. They're developing the photographs. Mm-hmm. Higgins, uh, as you said, a fan of Slash K, is immediately like, oh, yeah, they're using these guns with this modification. With blah, 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 blah. And, you know, they, it uses these rounds. And Magnum's like, yeah, okay, they were shooting at me. Yeah. So then they, they chat for a bit in uh, Robin Master's, like, hella kitchen. Man, wood and white tile and copper everywhere. Mm-hmm. That kitchen is on point. It's pimp. Yeah. And, uh, he wants uh, Magnum wants Higgins to run the picture over to Rick to, to Rick so that Rick and TC can take a look at it and see if they recognize this guy. And Magnum needs to do some night skulking. Yeah. And so Higgins says he'll do it, but he wants Robin Master's car back because Magnum's already been too reckless with it. I mean, and it's kind of fair. It's fair. He was driving it around and being shot at. Yeah. So then so Magnum's like, okay, fine. Oh, also, there's this completely unnecessary cover story. That um, Cook's Cook sister, sister is Magnum's is, sister. Is Magnum's sister. She said that so Higgins would let her in. I know, but then she keeps with it. So she's like, blah, 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 my father. And he's like, your father? As opposed to Magnum's father? And she's like, yeah, we're half siblings. And then she says, later oh, on, I need she my says, brother's stuff. We, we need my brother's stuff. And Higgins is like, excuse me? Your brother's? And she's like, without pause, she's like, oh, half sister, different yeah, she's like from my mom's third husband, so no relation to Magnum. Yeah, exactly. Like she's actually fairly capable. And of this. Higgins is like weird family. All right. So then, so the night skulking though involves Magnum putting back on his uniform oh. that he he promised he would never do, not even on Halloween. I feel like that's disrespectful. Like I think maybe that's why he wouldn't do that. On well, Halloween. no, because he just didn't want to put the uniform back on. And she said, "Why? What, you know, why do you leave?" And I actually kind of like this line. The, you know, because he he just resigned. He was like, I not, don't want to be in the military anymore because he said one day he woke up at age 33 and realized he'd never been 23. But anyhow, so I think that's good. He just wants but to been, fuck bitches and have fun. He'd been in the Navy for 10 years. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, you know what? I want to do stuff. I want to be not Navy. Uh, yeah, refreshingly, he does not, he once again does not take advantage of Cook's sister's sorrow. I don't remember the character's name, but he does not take advantage of her sorrow uh, for for boning purposes. No. Which he could, again, in the scene. He actually says, I'm not going to because you're vulnerable. And I'm like, that's incredibly refreshing for a show this old. Mm -hmm. But then we cut to outside, and there's someone in the bushes outside Robin Master's house. It's the big Hawaiian guy who didn't die in the car crash who killed Cook at the beginning of the first episode. And he's watching the house, and he sees the red Ferrari leaving, but Higgins is inside. So, uh uh-oh, oh no, it's Higgins. Yeah. And then we'll leave that plot thread for a while. Yeah, so... (laughs) So they're in. So uh, Magnum's in his uniform. They get they get onto the base, and he's like, "Okay, as long as I don't know the 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 watch, like as long as I know, as long as I don't know the guy on watch or the duty officer, I'll be able to just pretend because I still have my uniform, and apparently that's totally okay. I'll be able to pre- think, pretend my way into this. I feel like they don't. Well, I mean, he knows what he's doing. Yeah. He only left like a year ago, so some people might not know he's even left. That's true, right? Like unless they served with him, they might have just thought he was away for a while. Yeah. Right. So he's and like, as long as he doesn't know them personally, it'll be okay. Yeah, exactly. And like, that's not like the kind of uniform just anyone can get. Yeah. So he walks in. 
He walks up to the uh, to the ensign on watch, and I'm startled to see that the ensign on watch is played by Judge Reinhold. In one of his first this roles is, ever. This is his third credit on IMDb. Oh, good for you, Judge Reinhold. This was two years before Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Wow. Uh, and I was well, like, Fast Times at Ridgemont High is that old? 1982. Wow. And I was like, is that is that Judge Reinhold looking very young? And he's uh, watch. He's uh, he's uh, reading a Robin Masters novel. Is he really? Yes. I didn't pick up on that. Well, he tells him to get his no if he want, doesn't want to go back to where he's from, which is like Minnesota, then he should stop reading Robin Masters novels on watch. In in the Magnum world, Robin Masters is like a cross between like Stephen King and Tom Clancy, basically. Oh, that's really cute. I didn't I didn't actually catch that little that little detail. Yeah. Anyway, I was like I just started humming Axel F in my in my head when I yeah. saw Judge Reinhold. Um uh, again, he was was in Beverly Hills Cop, in case that wasn't clear from the actual F reference. Anyway, so he just, uh, so Magnum just sort of social engineers his way into the building and he's like, oh yeah, by the way, who's the uh, duty officer? And the, and the, and the, and Wolf, which is Judge Reinhold's character says, oh, it's uh, Ensign Healy. And Magnum's like, crap. Because <laughs> Healy, of course, knows who Magnum is and knows that he's basically made it pretty clear he's going to try and steal stuff. Mm-hmm. So he goes upstairs, he gets the information he needs and he finds out. Cook had indeed been sent to Japan. Womp womp. Well, no, but not not by Cooley. Yeah, by what, someone else. What had happened was some some scuba diving kids who had been diving where they shouldn't found a crashed plane off that island where Magnum and TC found the boat. And it actually was smuggling gold. During World War II. During World War II. Cooley reported that it was actually a downed zero plane from the attack on Pearl Harbor. Mm-hmm. And, and said, then so there was nothing there. So there was nothing there, not worth salvaging. Mm-hmm. Cook got word, got a letter from a mother in Japan, a mother of a lost pilot mm-hmm. who wanted him to confirm if it was her son's plane. Cook then, the reason Cook went to Japan was to check their military records to, to corroborate the... Uh, Captain Cooley's story about this plane, mm. which was not true, mm-hmm. right? And the only tip was that he's like, "Wait, this doesn't this letter that I got with this name. This is not. This doesn't match up with this plane that Cooley reported. This is not this person's kid. This doesn't make sense." Mm. So he went to Japan himself, and so Magnum's like, "It was Cooley. Ha ha. He's involved." And it makes sense because why would Cook smuggle cocaine? Because we saw at the beginning of the episode. If he wanted to smuggle cocaine, he literally has the, you don't need to look at my bags or search my stuff security clearance because I'm like Navy investigative services. Yeah, he, he certainly wouldn't need to hide it within his person. Yeah, exactly. So anyhow. So while Magnum is finding this revelation that Cooley is indeed a dirty captain. A jerk. Uh, Cook's sister and Ensign Healy. <laughs> come in because, because Magnum, she went, she went, I don't know why he took her with him for fun. I, um, and he's like, okay, if, if anybody sees you and they ask you questions, say that you're waiting to meet Ensign Healy. And then... Ensign he Healy. Then shows up. It's like, hey, what are you doing here? And she's like, oh, I'm waiting to meet Ensign Healy. I'm Cook's sister. I'm here to take his stuff. And He doesn't question why she's here in the middle. Like, at 2 a.m.? Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, he does. He's like, at 2 a.m.? She's like, I, you know, can't sleep properly because of grief or whatever. But you're the duty officer, so you can sign my stuff out, right? Because you, you right now have all the... Signing authority of the captain because you're the duty officer. And he's like, yeah, I guess I do. All right, come in. We'll yeah, give she, you his personal effects. She's actually quite smooth and charismatic herself. So they come up the elevator and Magnum's like, oh, I have to hide. 
So he ducks into... He picks the lock. Picks the lock. And ducks into Cooley's office. Ducks into Cooley's office. Uh, lock, his lock-picking skills were established at the beginning of the first episode when he picks the lock to Robin Master's Ferrari. Mm-hmm. Ducks into Captain Cooley's office where he finds... Bum-bum-bum. Captain Cooley's there, dead. Womp. He's been double-crossed by this gold smuggler. He's been dead for several days. Well, they say since Friday, since so it's Friday. probably like the weekend. Well, this is like Sunday, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So, so they're not going to find him till tomorrow. So the guy on the boat was not Captain Cooley. No. Yes. But so, but but you know, Captain Cooley was involved in this gold plot and then has been doubled cross, double crossed by the dirty guy. But that makes sense as to why Captain Cooley was more than willing to let Cook go down because because basically Cook was this close, you know, to uncovering this gold plot and. Uh, and uh, as far as he's concerned, this is a great way to get rid of somebody he hates and dishonor him at the same time. Perfect. Uh-huh. What could possibly go wrong? Leaving the guy dead in his office in the military base? <laughs> There's that. That could go wrong. Yeah. I mean, I feel... There's got to be a more subtle way to do that. I feel like Magnum's prints are now everywhere in that office, but that's never resolved. In the other office, actually. Magnum didn't touch anything in... He touched in, the door. That's true. He, he picked the lock, too. And then they leave, and I I wrote this down, in a plan that would never work today Mm -hmm. with security cameras and stuff. They just leave. He says goodbye to Wolf. They take off. Uh, It's it's like the fact that no one is like, was anyone here? And they don't talk to Wolf. And he's like, well, there was Captain. I didn't actually catch his name. And they're like, what? Who? And like, well, he was about this tall, had a big ass mustache. And they're like, Magnum? Wait, no, this is the 1980s. Big ass mustache. They're like, that could be anyone. (laughs) That's true. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, they just like they're just like later, vroom, and then they go to Rick's cabana. Yeah. So well, so yeah. Then you you cut to Rick's. Uh, TC and Rick don't recognize the guy in the photo because it's a terrible photo. Higgins continually maintaining, I know I didn't take the photo. I thought Magnum's photo was garbage as well. <laughs> it's out of focus and crappy. I don't know how that guy has a job taking pictures. Um, Magnum's like, I was in a helicopter. Yeah, uh, and there's a. Uh, there's a nice little uh, character bit of uh, Higgins is like, "All right, I've done. I've I've delivered the picture. I'm leaving." And Rick is like, "Here you go. You know, have have some cash for your time." And Higgins is like, "I don't accept tips." And TC says, "I bet you don't give them either." I think maybe that's a reference to British people don't typically tip. Yeah, they don't tip in the UK. Yeah, and I feel like that would be less known in the 1980s that that it's you're supposed to tip in the US because obviously you don't have the same access to information that you do nowadays. Mm-hmm. You can't just look up on the internet and see, should I tip when I go to this country? <laughs> also, TC is black and might might suffer discrimination in that regard as well. That's true. They set up TC as quite the horn dog, which I don't particularly like, but otherwise he's a good character. Actually, can I talk briefly about a great character moment from earlier in the episode that I love? Yes. When they're in the helicopter trying to figure out if the ship that looks like a naval ship is actually Laboul's ship or not. Mm-hmm. And Magnum's like, well, just sneak up on them. And he's like, how am I going to sneak in a helicopter? And he's like, I don't know, just sneak. And TC's like, okay, Magnum, we're sneaking. Okay. Yeah, and we're officially sneaking now. Okay, yeah, 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 right, that was it. We're officially sneaking now. And they're still <laughs> driving a humongous fucking helicopter that's incredibly loud. But he does it in just this, like, really playful, buddy-buddy way that, like, immediately sells that they are longtime friends. Yeah. Right? Like, okay, Magnum, we're officially sneaking now. Sure. <laughs> I just really liked that. So, Higgins leaves. They're looking out the one-way the one-way glass of Rick's office, and they're like, man, you know, what's happening with all this stuff? I, you know, everything's crazy. And then Rick is like, that big Hawaiian dude just got up and followed Higgins out of here, and he's a hitman. I know that guy. 
Because, of course, Rick knows all these underworld people. Then Rick grabs a fucking Uzi. I know! I'm like, <laughs> what is going on? And tears off out of the club. So with TC in tow, Rick tears off down the street. A city, a public, a large, busy public street holding an Uzi an in Uzi plain sight. And a white tuxedo coat. <laughs> it's literally the least subtle you could be. <laughs> Like, you could have just put up a sign that said, I am a gangster, and it would have been, like, more undercover than this. So Higgins gets to the car. Um, the the big dude, the hitman, catches up with him. Still with bandages all over his face from the car crash. Uh, but what Higgins does is he cracks open the door of the car so that the the Robin Masters alarm thing from the beginning of the first episode will go off, will in, go like off a in a minute. Rick and TC are still running to catch up. Magnum sees Rick running down the street with his Uzi and pulls over and is like, Rick, what are you doing? Even Magnum is like, what? Rick's like, why are you in uniform? They're both like, what is happening here? Then the alarm goes off. The hitman is briefly distracted. Higgins is able to sort of like... Give him a karate chop. Give him a karate chop, which does not do anything. Uh, I mean, he he like, he's not useless. The guy, the guy laughs it off. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but and, I like that it shows that Higgins is like capable on his own too, right? Yeah. And then uh, they uh, they they shoot the they shoot the hitman. Higgins is okay. Everyone's yeah. Well, okay. Magnum Magnum rescues Higgins at the last second, so he doesn't get shot by the hitman who has his own gun. And then Rick Rick, Rick uh, shoots the hitman with the Uzi. And amazingly, the Ferrari is unharmed. Yeah. And I bl- he's imper- impervious to bullets and dog claws. Apparently, I believe TC does question Rick's gun. He he is like. <laughs> What what's this? Like he does actually point at the gun and is like, "Where'd you get that?" And then there are no consequences to this murder. <laughs> no, none at all. This is our third consequence-free murder. Of yeah, the-, the Captain Cooley stuff never brought up again. Yeah, he's you, just you never dead. find out what happens to like any sort of. And it'd probably be boring paperwork, and that's not what's important. What's important is avenging Cook. Yes. So, Magnum is like Nabul has to be. I, le- I know who Laboul is. Or yeah, I know I know who Laboul is. Like he figures it out. He's like, I know who it is. He has to be the airport. Because they saw a speedboat picking up someone off the 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 yacht and going in. So it's like he's obviously trying to skip the island. So I know who it is. So Magnum does the thing that any reasonable adult would do, which is he gets a gun, a handgun, and walks into the front door of the airport. Yeah. I feel like this is Never, like, what it not only tips me off into this as a different day and age is not, like, the analog sign with, like, the blinky lights and the 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 letters that flip down is that you are carrying a gun in an airport and you are not immediately shot and arrested and then re-arrested and then re-shot. Yeah. I should say he realizes this while he's uh, sw- he's swimming in the pool out back of Robin Master's place and he's he rubs his shoulder and there's a bullet scar there. Uh, which uh, him rubbing the bullet scar set off an earlier flashback. Mm-hmm. So he, like back to Vietnam. So he's rubbing the he's rubbing the uh, the scar, and then he's like, "Oh my god, I know who it is." Nowadays we call that PTSD, kids. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> um. So he uh, he gets to the airport, and indeed it is who I thought as soon as I saw the guy on the deck of the yacht. It is his commander from Vietnam who was shot and held the held the Viet Cong back while Cook and Magnum ran for the helicopter. Uh, who you never saw fully dead, but you assumed he was dead, and it was like an hour ago, so you don't really remember him anymore, and you were pretty sure it was Cooley anyway, and now mm-hmm. you're sort of blindsided by the fact that Cooley's dead, and Laboul has to be someone else, and you're like, who could it possibly be? And it's their old commander from Vietnam. Oh, and it's still somebody in the Navy. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Foreshadowing. So Inga and Helga see um, Magnum, and they go, Magnum! And the the commander goes, Magnum? And turns around and goes, uh-oh, calmly walk to bathroom. Must escape Magnum. Yeah. I feel the ma- the commander didn't know it was Cook he was putting out a hit on. 
No. Oh no, he didn't. He actually mm-hmm. he actually says that when Magnum then enters the the, the airport bathroom. And that, of course, both of them have guns at this point because it's an airport, and as we all know, airports famously hospitable to open carry. Uh- <laughs> well, not initially, because <laughs> first they they have they they sort of exchange some words. The guy's like, "You you." Magnum walks in with a gun visible. Yeah, he says, "You left me for dead," and Magnum's like, "We came back for you, and you were gone." And then you know the the captain or whoever's like, "People change after the war or whatever," and doesn't really explain why he became a, a drug dealer, but whatever. Or a smuggler. Then he's surprised, pulls a gun out, shoots Magnum in the shoulder, but Magnum shoots him directly in the chest, and then they both That's fall our- down, bleeding. The, uh, the the commander unconvincingly slumps over dead. Yeah, that was a really bad slump. And, I would have made him do that. take that again. And no one comes into the bathroom. Nobody's like, oh my God, gunshots. No one. A different no, time and age. There's no sound. There's no indication that anyone has heard that this is happening. I mean, gunshots in an airport bathroom, that's common place in the early 1980s, right? Yes. Magnum t- having taken another bullet to the same shoulder as this, as his Vietnam scar, uh, closes his eyes, the camera fades to black, and then cut to him cracking a brew. <laughs> <laughs> and that is the essence of Magnum. <laughs> chilling, chilling on a lawn chair in the estate there, talking about how Higgins is all cranky because... Uh, uh, three hot French stews. Three hot French stews were coming into town, and he he got he said that he would show them around. Which Higgins is like, that's my job, and they're all now they're fighting again, even though a begrudging respect had been built up. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> cut to cut to credits after a shot of of Magnum nursing his arm in a sling and nursing a beer in the in his good hand, sitting on the lawn chair in the middle of the the lawn at Robin Masters' estate as Higgins six Zeus and Apollo on him. <laughs> That's the essence of the show. Yeah. Is that at the end of the day, everything is fine, and Magnum is still like this happy-go-lucky guy drinking a beer in the sun. Yeah, and Higgins tolerates him, and his friends are fine. And his friends are fun, and they have adventures. Yeah. And uh, I don't know. <laughs> and that was the pilot. That's... Don't Don't eat the snow in Hawaii, because you shouldn't swallow cocaine or it will kill you. I mean, don't swallow cocaine's good advice no matter where you are. But you can't say that in the name of an episode, so don't eat the snow in Hawaii, <laughs> part one and part two. Yeah, perhaps that title wasn't as good as it could have been, but yeah, you know. <laughs> maybe not. Well, that was, that was episode one of the Magnum Rewatch podcast. If you are interested in watching Magnum for yourself, it's on American Netflix, or you can order the DVDs if you live in Canada. Like, like we did. And, uh, you, and you too can watch, as IMDb grossly undersells it, the Adventures of a Hawaii-Based Private Investigator. <laughs> uh, the uh, next episode is called China Doll. Oh. And uh, who knows what's going to happen with that, but I'm looking forward to it. We'll tell you the plot and any related historical fun facts. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. Um, the the uh, We were able to do this podcast uh, as part of the, um, the, the Mystery Box funding uh from people on our patreon which is patreon.com slash loading ready run um you can subscribe to this podcast on itunes if you aren't already and uh we really appreciate your feedback so hit us up on twitter kathleen is kathleen underscore lrr i am graham underscore lrr it's g-r-a-h-a-m and uh you can find out all the rest of the stuff we do at loadingreadyrun.com hmm. and we uh we really appreciate you listening to our weird Magnum Rewatch podcast. Yeah, and in future, the episodes won't be quite so long. No, but the first one was a, we had to talk about what, why we were doing the podcast, and it was a two-parter as the pilot. So we'll see. We'll see how it goes. I'm excited.
Thanks for listening. Yeah.